0: The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Oh, All righty, go ahead and open your Bibles back to the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to pick up here in just a little bit, Mark chapter 2, trying our best to examine tonight, verses 1 through 12. So Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. When it comes to the Gospel of Mark, and of course we've discussed several things from it, I don't believe to any extent we've really exhausted chapter 1, but I know we spent quite a bit of time on it, so it is time for chapter 2, and that's where we want to pick up. But before we do that, uh, I want to kind of back up and remind you, and I'm going to be sharing with you, I think, this one being a little bit new, that there are several outlines that... I try to put together, that's kind of one of my first steps when I go through uh, preparing for a, a class to teach or one to study for myself. It's just always been my approach to read through the book several times, and I encourage you to do that. If you got uh, the opportunity to read through the entire book, that's going to be a great benefit. Uh, I encourage you as well that if, if that was not expedient for you uh, all the time, at least read the chapter we're discussing. And even more than that, even a smaller window there, read the context we're in. And so that's what I've done. I've read through the Gospel of Mark probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 times myself, and then chapter per chapter as well. And I love to outline. I love to outline. It helps my memory. It helps me to kind of get a layout. And so this is just another one of the outlines that we've taken view of in the past. Particularly when we've approached that, we've tried to take view of it from Uh, A couple of major perspectives. One of those I know I put up way in the introduction, what I call the introduction, the introduction. We looked at how the Gospel of Mark itself divides itself into two halves. Now that's not necessarily equal, but there are basically two major principles that are put forth in the Gospel of Mark. One of them, and it's the section we are in and will be in for quite a while, uh, it talks about the servant, that's Jesus, and how the servant gives his life to service. And of course, that's obvious. You can't be a servant without doing some service to someone else. And then that breaks itself down. I won't go through to speak any of these. But we're in that first major section right here, which has to do with the servant's work. What is it that Jesus was set forth to do? What is his cause? What is his plea? What is his desire? And of course, as we've seen already in that, kind of divide that up a little bit farther we've noticed that of his work, his work has only had its beginning so far. The first chapter is just simply that. It's the beginning of the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Mark introduced us with when he told us there in verse 1. He said, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so his beginning, his beginning of the gospel is what's been set forth. And everything that we've discussed at this point has fallen into that category. However... When we enter into chapter 2 in just a few moments, we're moving into another section, in my mind at least. And that goes, as you might see on the screen here, from verses 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 6. So it kind of takes a little cut off in the middle of chapter 3. But that's what I've entitled, for memory's sake, at least the belittlement of Jesus. Because up until this point, he's not yet received as much attack, accusation, Uh, ridicule, whatever you want to call that. Uh, He's not received as much persecution as he ultimately would. And the majority of his persecution that comes about during his early ministry, the early half of it at least, all comes about, and the latter for that matter, all comes about from several groups, most of which are made of what we refer to and he does as the scribes and or the Pharisees. Of course, most of the scribes were a part of that group, but that's his belittlement. That's what they're going to do to try to accuse him and call him out. And it really doesn't matter. We've kind of already got the preface to this, chapter 1, 1 to 45. It doesn't matter in the life of Christ whether he's doing good. Of course, that's all that he ever would do, whether he's preaching, whether he's teaching. I've often referred to that as whether it's his word or his works. They've always got something to say about it. And that's kind of the case sometimes with our accusers, and especially the main accuser being Satan himself, the devil. He's going to have something to say about whatever we do, no matter how good it is. And so we have to kind of live a life on one stand, I think, uh, similar to Jesus and that is we've just got to work on. We can't be frustrated. We can't be knocked down or put out uh, by the accusations and by the ridicule that we're put through. And so his belittlement is a big part of that. Of course, because that goes to chapter 3 and verse 6, uh, not a lot of more time needs to be spent. On that, and then we've looked at this. This was chapter one in the review. I won't mention it, but you can see it on the screen. We talked about his confirmation, his challenge, of course, his cry, and all that, to it's gotten us to this point. But even though you might see, and you do see in the scriptures, the copies that we have, you see shifts between uh, sections and particularly chapters. Uh, those things are always handy. Obviously, it would be impossible for me to just say go to these words and you just thumb through and find it. Uh, But oftentimes those shifts uh, take place more or less for our own expedience and for doing that, finding scripture, than the fact that much has really changed. Now in this case, the only thing really that has changed in the life of Jesus is just the fact that he's moved from one place to another. And in a lot of cases with Mark and or it's true with John especially, they mark his movement specifically by where he was. And even John will add to that not only where he was, but what time of the year it was, and points out a lot of those feasts. So there's just kind of a shift that takes place in this. As far as this chart, I think it's probably the most important we we try to put up, or I'm trying to put up each week. We've got to understand that these are parallel gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all gospels of Jesus Christ. They all, to one extent... (laughs) in most cases they all bring, in this case there's three of the four, bring a tremendously different perspective to what happens in the life of Christ. And so from what I was able to see in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 is a much smaller section down here as far as the divisions of it. It's a lot less things to deal with. In those cases, each of those Gospels will bring peculiar perspectives. So I want to encourage you uh, that when you are studying any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that sometimes you can find notes in your margins, maybe center columns or other reference. If you see a reference to another gospel, it's very high likely that that has to do with the account itself. And so you can turn to those, uh, flip and read those sections. Most of the time they're similarly sized in length or information, but you can sometimes draw draw some things out from that. In this case, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 of Mark, are directly paralleled also in Luke's account, I'm sorry, Matthew's account and Luke's account, and the references are here on the screen. John does not have anything that precisely parallels this. However, I, when I first put this together a few days ago, I actually did have a reference out here to John. It's not direct, but there are many times when it speaks of uh, the persecution that he's put through based on his healing of some group or some man. And so there are parallels But as far as finding new information per account, you're going to be in Mark 2, also Matthew 9 and Luke 5. So that are those references. Now, these are open questions that are kind of going to set the stage for this section. Uh, I think we'll all have similar answers anyway. But what is the greatest, in your mind, from you being a student of the Bible, what would you say is the greatest benefit? There are multiples, but what would be the greatest benefit that you get out of being a Christian? That, that would pretty much summarize it up. Salvation is probably even the way I was planning the word that in my mind, but salvation, ultimately the reward of that is heaven. And so salvation is what we are able uh, not to earn, but to obtain based on our faithful obedience to the gospel, based on doing what God requires, based on doing what Jesus said. Very similar to that, uh, I would ask this, and this will be much the same, what is man's greatest need? When you put it outside of us, what do they need? They need the gospel. They need salvation. They need to have their sins to be forgiven. And the reason I bring those two questions up, it's not that we would have had any argument or any uh, clue about those being anything different than that as far as the main things, but really this is one of the earliest times in the ministry of Jesus, as Mark records, when Jesus draws all of that to a head. Up in this point, now Jesus' intent has been consistent. His intent was much like Luke summarized it. He has come to seek and save that which was lost. Of course, that's a common reference, Luke 19, verse 10. He has come to proclaim the gospel and call upon men to believe and repent. That's several times mentioned in Mark chapter 1 and other references go along beside of that. But in this context of chapter 2, 1 to 12, Jesus parallels one of his wonders, one of his works, that's a miracle sign, mighty deed, it's referred to in other gospels. He parallels directly one of those wondrous works to the exact purpose of having a man's sins to be forgiven. And what that not only does is brings those, draws those two things together, and starts to, I guess you would say, have it to click in the men's minds that whatever he does, it's practical, that's physical, that's material is not for that main purpose. And it wouldn't matter if he's healing a leper, casting out demons, changing water to wine, like John's first account of him. Um, you can name any of the miracles that he does, the 32 to 35, 36 of those that are recorded for us, the thousands upon thousands that would have been committed that are not recorded specifically. That Ultimately, the purpose of that was to show us something spiritual and not just the physical. Again, that's things we understand and know, uh, I know as Bible students. But in this case, again, he draws that specific parallel. Now, to put a little purpose with that, a couple different scriptures that I decided to kind of parallel with that, you can make note of or what have you. But for example, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 38, here's what it said concerning the work that Jesus did. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that this man who preached unto you, uh, he preached unto you for the forgiveness of sins now that comes into play much like the next reference I'll pop up on the screen as well it says in whom we have redemption through his blood that's Jesus' blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace other passages the Old Testament lay aside of that also Exodus 34 6 and 7 that has been the intention of God from the beginning is to provide a way since the garden that his son will be able to come and have those sins to be forgiven Now, in the context, we haven't read it yet, I understand that, but I know you've read it before. In the context of what he does here, where he's about to heal a paralytic, uh, cause a man to be able to walk that had had no capacity to do so, at least when he arrived in front of him, and the fact that he says to this young man, thy sins be forgiven. With those two things being known about this, what is the ultimate desire of Jesus? Was he coming in here to make sure that every man that he encountered could walk? Or that every leper was healed, cleansed? Or, or that every blind man could see and on through the list? That every demon was cast out? No, he did tons of that, as we would call it. But his ultimate intention was for this. And what he does in this context, which the Pharisees, the scribes, begin. Again, this is kind of there beginning to bite down on him, the beginning to belittle him. What they have a problem with at this point more than anything else is not the fact that he healed anyone, but the fact that he said that he was going to forgive sins. Why would it be a problem? We're going to look into this as we get to it, but why would you say right now, why is it a problem that Jesus would claim to forgive sins? The context, they make an accusation that's true, actually. What do they say about it? It makes him equal to God, and they say only who can do that? Only God. And that's been universal, old, new, what have you. Of course, Jesus, as Cliff just referred to in here with us, being the propitiation for our sins, being the replacement, the, the what does that taking away of our sins, his bloodshed being such. But in the case of this, that is ultimately their problem. And when they argue with him, as we're about to read, look, only God can do that, or they right or wrong. They're absolutely right. And so this proves, once again, as if the other miracles to this point haven't, this proves absolutely his deity. That him in humanity also possessed within himself as equal to that deity. And so he's going to be committed to not only healing men, but also to forgiving sins. So let's read the context here and we'll start to break a little bit of it out. First of all, it starts out. I'm reading from the King James here. And again, he entered into Capernaum. Now, we've looked at Capernaum several weeks ago and kind of the uh, place on the map where that was. After some days, now there are none of these accounts, whether you look at Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 9, nor uh, Luke that give any clue as to how many days, but there was a period of the past. He he, came back into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Not sure what that is. Could have been Peter's house, could have been anything else. What do we know about Jesus specifically that he told, though? We don't assume him to be a property owner. But he obviously had places where he typically liked to go, the house of Lazarus, the house of Peter, and such. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch as there was no room to receive him, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Now, if you want to kind of put a marker right there beside that last phrase, he preached the word unto them. Remember back over in chapter 1, that was his intention the whole time. No matter whether he was actually speaking with his mouth his words or working his wonders, his mighty deeds, his miracles in any sense, he was intending to do that for the same end, and that is to draw men unto him. And so he desired to preach. That's why he's many times when he moves immediately from place to place to place, he lets his disciples be reminded that his purpose was to go about and do this, to teach the gospel. So he preached the word of them, verse 3. And they came unto him, and they come unto him, uh, bringing the sick of the palsy, who was, which was born of four, and when they could not come in nigh for, unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And Jesus saw their faith and said to the sick of the palsy, verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven. Again, that's kind of a key breakout phrase that matters in the text. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and also reasoning in their hearts, why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, you can put out beside this that this is one of those places where Luke helps out a little bit. Uh, Mark mentions the scribes and the Pharisees being there. Luke seems to give the idea that he was there specifically with the scribes and Pharisees. Luke kind of front loads the account by bringing out the fact the scribes and the Pharisees are there. But nonetheless, they're present. Why doth this man, verse 7, speak blasphemies? We'll come back to that. Who, their question, can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sons be forgiven thee, or arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now, I hadn't got the screen up yet, but I put a huge question mark behind that because if you'll notice, when he asks those questions, which one is easier? Is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier to cause a man to walk? You'll notice in verse 10, there's no reference to their answer. Why couldn't they answer him? Much for the reason they rarely answered him, that's because he had them. That's because any answer that they give He's got them. If they say, well, it's easier to forgive sins, he's like, well, why would that be? You said only God can do that. Or if they say, well, I'll tell you what, it'd be a lot easier to make a man walk. Well, they might assume he could do that because he'd already healed several, many up until this point. But at either rate, they are not willing to give Jesus either one. So there's no answer recorded there. But, why would you even ask? He said, but that you may know That the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed and walk, go thy way into thy house. Now, another word that I emphasize we'll have to get back to, you might want to go ahead and circle. Circle the word know right here. That you may, verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. So this is going to be a learning moment. It's kind of a learning curve as we call it for these Jews, the Pharisees and all that were around him because he's going to draw them through what, event, what eventually ends up to be two miraculous acts and thanks be to God, there's at least one miraculous, you might call it miraculous, maybe be supernatural act that continues to happen today and that's what? His ability or God's ability to do what? To forgive sins. We don't necessarily have the other miracles being seen. We have none of them being done or called to be done by men today. None of that. But thanks be to God that forgiveness of sins continues to be one of those supernatural things that only he could do uh, through us. Now I won't go into much of this, but I want to pick it up as we start to divide out. When it mentions him being in Capernaum, and when it mentions the context here, or the, uh, the mention of the fact that they came up on the roof and they started to break that roof down, This is one of the pictures, and I I found this, actually, this whole thing was in Apologetics Press website. You know how uh, studied and and well, good they are at putting things together. Uh, They've got some pictures of what would be a thatched type of roof. And and I pictured them probably a little bit different than this, but basically the thatched roofs that they had on most structures in the day, if it were a thatched roof, were done so by laying down a, a, a series of timbers, obviously kind of a base We might call it the rafters or something like that. And then they would in turn, or the joist, and then they would in turn lay on top of that a a series of reeds or or some type of material, you know, grass type materials come on top of that with typically a layer of mud, which they packed really, really heavily. There was even a device that's been discovered, I don't have pictures of this, but uh, there are pictures available, but there's even a device that's been discovered that they assume was somewhat of a roller I don't know if you've ever seen anybody put down a linoleum back in the day, whatever they call it, vinyl now. Sometimes they'll have a vinyl roller to smooth things out. They had something like that used, supposedly for making roofs, and they would lay down that mud structure, and then you can't see it here. I tried to enlarge it a little bit on the next picture, but then they would oftentimes to sure things up, then turn and place rocks and stones, and and even go to the last part, which was to actually plant, supposedly to plant grass to help to Bind that together. So I, I've got more grass in my driveway than they got right there, and I didn't try to get it, but that's the way they structure their roofs. And so backing up the previous slide, there was a few mentions, of Apology express that I thought were uh, you know, not, not far out of our thinking, but, but neat to think about. Their houses, their homes, were used more in Jesus' day for purposes other than to live in. Where do you spend the majority of your time in your house? Most of us have a room that's either called a a den or a living room. What does that mean? Well, you're not in bed and you're not cooking supper, so that's where people gather. They didn't necessarily have places like that set aside. Now, obviously the larger structures, the mansions, whatever of their day, would've had more. But a lot of times, these are one-room structures. These were places where they would either store things where they would go in to rest at night, or in this case, where they would even sometimes worship. A couple references, Old and New Testament give us that idea. But they didn't use their homes exactly like we do, I don't think. They used them more for just a place to land to finish up the day. They spent more time outside. But it seems likely from other evidence, they did use the rooftops for quite a bit. Uh, supposedly oftentimes they were used for gatherings, for parties and such. And you remember when Jesus came came among the disciples, Acts chapter 1 records this, when he comes among the disciples, where is it said that he and those disciples went? To an upper room, which depending on the size of the house, some of the research I did could have been a room as we think of it, a second story, could have as well been a rooftop because that is a regular general gathering place. But it was noise that he was in the house. So Jesus has come home to Capernaum, which is to this point been similarly his home base. Uh, According to the map that we looked at back weeks and months ago, uh, most of what he did that we recognize and say, well, this is a big event in Jesus' life, whether it's Sermon on the Mount, Sermon by the Sea, the healing of this person or that, or this wonderful work, or the stilling of this water, or the walking on water. Most all that took a part around the Sea of Galilee also known as Channera, Tiberius, And most of that took place in and in the proximity of, although there was miles between them, uh, to the point he could get back to Capernaum. So he's there, it's noise that he was back in the house, more or less. So straightway when he gathered together, see them, no so much as there was not about the door, there was no room in there. How do you generally picture that? I know we've been reading this account or hearing this account since we were small how do you picture that I guess I've almost pictured it like people showing up at BJCC but I don't think that's accurate these are much smaller structures but it's a point where it's trying to be described I guess by scripture where this, this house was packed why would, it, why would there be so many people there to see Jesus Came to Muffin to preach, and the building was full. Kids were sitting on the floor, all the seats were taken, and people were listening outside the windows. Mm-hmm. To be able to hear I've heard of such as that, too, and I pray to God the day we'll see it. I mean that's going to be up to a lot of the work that we're able to do, and of course the grace of God to do so. Now Linda's nodding like you're telling the truth there. She kind of knows. some of you know things like that that took place. She's too young for that. Oh. I was there. I was on the floor. Yeah, you were on the floor with the kids for sure. But you know this is a this is a gathering. People have come in. They're here to hear Jesus. Now the thing about this particular gathering, and I I, I didn't even get my little cheat sheet out right here. But you think about any group. I would apply this even probably especially to a religious gathering. If you want to use that, that, that my quotes can't get wide enough to, to loosely say that. But you at a religious gathering or any gathering, you're going to have all kind of people. You're going to have some people, not to go into the divisions I kind of came up with in my mind, but you're going to have some people who are flat out there because they're just curious. That's all they're there for. They just want, hey, what's happening? There's a big crowd already gathering. I don't know what's happening down there. I'm on my way. Now, in a smaller town, we absolutely know that takes place. That's undeniable for a small town like we live in around here. But you're going to have those that are curious. You're going to have those in, in a lot of cases that are there because they're really concerned. I mean, if you have someone who knows already, and some of these people may have, who knows already the work that Jesus is doing they may very well be concerned about that. You take, for example, what he did in the previous chapter. Just back up a little bit. Um, let's see. i go all back to, well, you go as far as you want, really. But let's look at verse 44. That's the previous chapter. Then saith him, uh, Sim, see thou nothing to say any. I can't read tonight. You can evidently tell that. And saith unto him, See that thou say nothing to any man. Go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer for thy cleansing the things which are commanded of Moses in testimony unto them. But he, now remember who this is. This is that leper. But he went out and began to publish it, much to ablaze abroad the matter, insomuch as Jesus could no more openly enter into the city but was without in deserted or desert places, and they came from every quarter. So I would assume there's some there that are curious, maybe, but there are definitely going to be some there who are concerned. We've got a a healer come to town. We've got a man who, according to the record, has not just healed a few, but according to what we saw in verse 32 to 34, the context prior to chapter 1, he's healed everybody that's coming up. It says specifically, and all the city gathered there at the door. He healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, verse 34 1. So there are a lot of people there. Some are there because they're concerned. We know that. But you see, there's another group of people that are definitely there. When we started in the introduction, the introduction, I, I tried to put together a chart. It's exhausting, but I, I'm glad I was able to do. <laughs> but they're at least... 62 named characters that are found in the gospel of Mark. 62 different named characters slash groups. Now sometimes when I say named, I'm talking about Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, what have you. But 62 different individuals or groups that are named in the gospel of Mark. How many of them really matter to what we find today? Who's the main character of this book? Who's the main character of Matthew's account? Luke. Luke. John, Exodus, keep saying Christ, every bit of it. Harder to see, but sometimes more difficult. But from the Garden of Eden forward, everything that is written should in some way point back toward Christ. So there are some there that are curious, probably. Probably some there that are concerned, but among these characters in this section that are named, those scribes and Pharisees are part of that. And according to what they think, see, this is not even what they said, but according to what they thought that Jesus saw and read within their hearts because God has that ability. That's another way in this context when he's proved to be deity, not just humanity. But in what they thought, they were there and they were most likely just counterfeits. At that point. They're religious. We would say it like this. Probably they were religious but wrong. Now. As a disclaimer. Should we always. Just as a blanket statement. Just take every mention of a scribe. A Pharisee. Or any, any of those high priests. Should we all throw them. Every one of them under the bus. Because we're so higher than, much higher than they. And they're so far beneath. i do that right there real quick. No. Matter of fact, most of the qualities that they ultimately developed, I'm going to assume, came out of a pure heart and their desire to serve God. Now, they went far beyond God's Word in many cases. Many of the laws and bylaws that they come up with go far beyond the boundaries of what God actually set forth in the law, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Covenant, either one. But they oftentimes were there in these assemblies as counterfeits, meaning they got in the assembly probably under the guise these are just good, religious, we might call them church going folks, but they're only there to make accusation against our Lord. And that's what they ultimately do in here. So there were those that were there, but there have to have been there, and there were at least, at least five. I don't know how many others, but there were definitely five there, I would say, that were committed. You know, I like to put my letters together, so there's kind of a group of C's. But there were definitely those that were committed, because we had these young men, or who I call them young men. I assume they were. They took the man, but these men who bore this guy up, who brought him to Jesus. Their faith, is what Their faith is what he's going to bring out. What he's going to cite for sure in the context, and that's something we'll have to continue to discuss as we do go through. But they bring the one, I'm in verse 3, I guess, something of that. So uh, they bring the one in him who was sick of the palsy. Now, all the accounts similar call him similar something to that effect. Uh, the word leans itself, and it said make a hill of beans, but the word tends to lean itself toward maybe someone who has had a stroke or something like that. Of course, we know people were born with what we would call palsy, weakness, or, or the lack of strength, something like that but it may lean itself to the fact that he was at least unable to move or complete movement on one side. When they couldn't come nigh to the door, they uncovered the roof and he broken it up and let down the bed in the sick of the palsy in that. Can you just imagine for just, just a moment or two, you, I'm sure you have as you read this before, what would it have been like to be in a house, that's what it was called, to be in that place and to have Jesus preaching, teaching, whatever you would call that, and to have the roof start to break up. And if you go back, I won't scroll all the way back to it, but you go back and you picture that thatched roof that was seen a moment ago, and you picture the way that was designed with the beams, then the layer of the grasses on top, then the layer of the dirt, the mud compacted, and then the stone. You see that type of roof perhaps beginning to break up. What's more than likely happening inside where those people are? subjection, but obviously something's falling. Uh, there's no way that you're taking a roof off, a ceiling out of a house even, and there not be some debris. Uh, most of you don't know this, but I, I remember Philip knows it. And y'all, what was it like when y'all took the uh, popcorn ceiling off in Oxford? Linda and Rick, I'm horrible, right? I saw it. I witnessed it too. Uh, if you do anything with a, with a rooftop, something's coming down. I mean, you're not keeping it up. They break the roof up. Now, other of the gospel accounts, this is where you keep the gospel accounts running, Matthew as well as Luke's account, uh, explains this in that they pulled up the tile. So we got Mark saying that they just broke up the roof, and we apply that and say, well, that most likely was a thatched roof and all that explanation. But then Luke tells us that it was tile. Bible discrepancy? No. Perspective has something to do with that. Um, Some of the more wealthier houses, we don't know exactly what this was, could we pinpoint it, doesn't even mention. Some of the more wealthier structures in that had more of a tile type situation. Um, They would have most likely uh, broken up more of a section of this. You obviously would know they're not trying to pull the whole roof off of this, so tile areas, sections are coming out of this. But they're removing the roof there's got to be some level of disturbance. So, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? From your study before, whose faith? Ones that brought Him? Any other ideas? Ah. (laughs) When there's something like this that could potentially go either way, potentially, it'd be my tendency normally just to disclaim and say I can't be sure. In this case, I'd be a little more dogmatic. The faith that's founded here would have most likely included the man. Now, I'm 40, am I 49? 48? I'm right in that age. Most of those years, I have always looked at this and thought, well, exactly, I think Lucy or somebody else said it too, their faith. Their faith. And, and the, the issue with that, if there, then, if there is an issue, what do some of the religious world like to take that idea and run with? What do what, what they like to do with that? You see, here we've got a man who has his sin forgiven, and guess what he, what he didn't even have to do? He didn't even have faith. This man is healed and his sins are forgiven and he had nothing to do with that. It was the faith of his friends. Now, do the faith of his friends have something to do with the account? You have to know it does. But who else would have had faith in this situation? The man. Again, I, this is my mistake. My, my being in complete, uh, I don't know what word you'd apply they that, ignorant of the situation but I look at this and I just read it for what it says. Um, I've, I've started piddling with the New King James. I don't think the New King James, Brad, you got the New King James. Does it say anything different than their faith? Because the words are there. I mean, the, the, the Greek is there for it. It's just their faith. That could have included and must have included the man, included those friends, could have included the faith of more people that were there. But who's Jesus focused on? This roof's coming down. The man's being lowered in on his mat. Who is Jesus' attention focused on right then? Their faith. So he sees those men. Again, whether or not we'd be dogmatic or not, Jesus saw their faith. And we'll, we'll look at that some more in just a moment. We do know that Jesus does, while on earth, at times place... I don't know what you call it other than gradients or ratings on some people's faith, right? We have people, and I've called it the condemnation, I can't get that word out, commendation. That's a whole lot different word from condemnation. But the commendation that he gives, he gives those, toward those who have great faith. A couple of the instances were more familiar with, for example, the centurion man. When he comes and says he wants his servant to be healed, what does Jesus say about him? He's not seen so great a faith as this. No, not in Israel. So he, he notices those who have great faith. He notices at times those who have growing faith also. There are times when people come to him who have a level of faith that he in turn understands and notices it need to grow. And I put down a number of the references where their faith was uh, at least referenced as being great or greater, or more than, or what have you. There are some of those extra references down here. But that oftentimes happened. So he commended those who had great faith. Now, I almost put condemned on this slide, and I kept backing up off of that. And I just can't say that he necessarily condemned. But he often considered or corrected those who had lesser faith, weaker faith. Now, If we're honest with ourselves, have we ever fallen into one of the other categories? Absolutely. The apostles apostles who he speaks to, and they've been present in the context of some of those accusations, they've been present in front of many miracles, whether it be the storms or whether it be the loaves and the fishes that oftentimes front loads those storms and different things in their life, whether it be the prayers that they're involved in or he's involved in. But many times Jesus recognizes those who have great faith on the one hand, but also those who have little faith. This reference here at the very top, Matthew chapter 14, 31 and 32, Jesus tells the disciples to have faith in him. Even when they're afraid, he says, why are you afraid? O ye of little faith. Now, their faith was in the right source. It's just my way of describing this based on the right source but it doesn't have the right amount of force. Similar idea. Right source, wrong force. Not as strong as. And we see times and instances, and again these are just a list of a few here, where Jesus had to consider their faith to be little. Now this is as far as we'll get. What would we or could we do? These are suggestions. There are many more. What would we or could we do if and when, might might as well say when, we recognize that our faith itself has gotten little. That we've, falling back or that we're not as strong and, and I, I'm hesitant to even use that but we're not as strong in faith as we once were what could we do the very first one that I listed I just put a little sentence to go with each one of them but the first one is essential absolutely essential when my faith is weak the number one thing I must do is to read my bible why <laughs> One of the most common verses we pull out of our pockets all the time on that. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You can't trust what you don't know. Trust is faith, it is belief. You can't trust what you don't know. So we've got to be regularly reading our Bible. And, and I can't tell you the number of times where my faith has failed miserably when if I'm absolutely honest with myself, the one of the areas, and there's the next one very close kin to it, one of the areas in which my faith has began that fall is my lack of regular reading or studying the Bible. Second to that, I mentioned here, prayer. You know, prayer within itself and the fact that we're able to pray to God, the fact that we are able then in turn in most cases, or many cases, to see God answer those prayers. Now, sometimes He's delayed, sometimes He's direct, sometimes we're denied. That's my three D words for that. But when we pray to God, as, as Jesus taught there in Sermon on the Mount, asking it shall be given, seeking you shall find, knocking it shall be opened. The practice of praying to God is a huge part of the relationship we have with Him and a huge part of the reason our hearts can trust Him. The next one I put down is a little more subjective, but it's through experience of mine and, and others. When we have the sense of needing help for our unbelief, Well, I I just misspoke. This is not subjective either. The last one is. I might have ordered my mind. We must assemble with the saints. Several reasons why we gather on the Lord's day. What would you say the first reason would be? Commanded to do so to worship, to partake of the implements, to do the things that God prescribed for us on that day. What is a secondary thing that comes about? that occurs in the life of those of us who are blessed to assemble together. That's the key word on the Lord's day or any other time. Exhortation. Matter of fact, in the big context that uh, we like to uh, wax a proverbial elephant with from Hebrews 10 and verse 25 about the assembly, the context and the statement that is made there it's not directly about it's a sin to miss church. That's, that's a given in some of that. But the direct th- principle that's set forth is what? When you're not there, you miss that exhortation. I, I, I feel I'm saddened by the fact that so many of our number at times cannot attend. And if you've ever been in that boat for any period of time, you know immediately how easily it would be for your faith to take a hit. Now, there are some that choose not to, but I'm talking about those that cannot. We've got several shut-ins among us that, that hadn't been here in years. I mean, that's, that's for their reasons. It, it, it is what it is. That's hard. I think the longest I've ever missed was two weeks. We were in my heart transplant. Yeah, two weeks because I was captive in the hospital. I got out on Wednesday. I went to services that night against doctors. It means a lot. And then the last one here, this is the subjective one. I made a mistake earlier, but the last one here, I would say just just the fact that there's two more, serving others. How much does it build our faith when we serve other people? You ever been in a place where your faith is failing or you're discouraged or downtrodden or depressed or whatever you could put along with that? and your life is focused on you and you only, and that happens to us, and that's fair many times, but then we step out of that box and we start to look at someone else's life or to help someone else or to assist someone else, and all of a sudden, what happens? One, our problems feel like as if they've been lifted, for one, but another, our faith is made strong because we can look at God and say, well, I see where they're at. I see what their difficulties, what their struggles are, and I see the ones I have in the way in comparison I know what God does for me now. I know where I'm at. And then the very last one, this is just stuff I listed. This is important. Be patient. When my faith is weak, I've got to be patient. Don't expect to be perfect in your faith overnight. Don't expect for that minute to be perfect in your faith ever. But be patient. Now, that's all about the fact that he saw their face, so we'll come back to that later. We've still got much context to go, but that's where we are. Questions, comments, corrections? I appreciate your time and your attention.